Hello and welcome to Ask Matt. I'm Eugene Cordero, Professor of Meteorology and Climate Science at San Jose State and founder and director of Green Ninja, a middle school publisher that uses climate and environmental solutions as a lens for teaching science and engineering. I'm here with my co-host Matt Delasio, geology professor from Cal State Northridge, national NGSS expert, and one of the chief authors for this 2016 California Science Framework. And this week we have a special guest, Dr. Oki Lee. Oki is a professor of childhood education at New York University, where she works to advance research policy and practice around science and language learning, especially for English learners. Dr. Lee was on the NGSS writing team, a leader of the NGSS diversity and equity team, and author of many peer-reviewed articles on teaching and learning. You can follow Dr. Lee's work at NYU's SAIL website or on Twitter at at Oki Lee. We'll leave links to those in our notes for you so you can keep track of her work. In today's episode, we'll talk with Oki about NGSS and get her unique perspectives and advice surrounding teaching and learning. In a later episode, we'll invite Dr. Lee back to our show so we can focus on another area of her expertise and interest, science and language. As usual, if you have any of your own questions, just send them to info at greenninja.org, and we'll include those questions in a future episode. So let's get started. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Lee. We are both really excited to speak with you. It's my honor to be here, and I go by my first name, Oki, like Madonna, Rihanna, Shakira. So I go Oki, not Lee or Dr. Lee. Okay, we will do that. And uh, I thank you for the references to Madonna. That is wonderful. So can you start us off by telling us about the original drafting of NGSS? What were the main goals that you and the other writers had? So the main goal of the science standards based on the framework is and was that Students are doing science and engineering as a scientists and engineers do, in one sentence. Students are doing the junior versions of a science and engineering. And this is a complete flip from the traditional approach where students were receiving the information, the canonical science knowledge, because scientists and science educators say so. That's a, that is very authentic. I, as a scientist, both Matt and our, all of us here, I really appreciate that students are doing that. One of the mantras in NGSS that we hear is all standards, all students. What does that mean? The framework in the NGSS put equity at the center. When the framework in the NGSS came out in 2012 and 2013, respectively, that was the time when the traditional racial and ethnic minorities flipped from the less than 50 to more than 50. So it was a very coincidental that the standards came out at the moment when the student population flipped. So we are going to say a lot about the flipping today, right? It is very different in the sense that Traditionally, when you think about the science education, that scientists like you and science educator, another like you, I'm saying Eugene and Matt, both of you, define this is the canonical knowledge of science. 
and it is typically written in science and textbooks. And this is why reading and writing, the literacy has been such a dominant force, or I would say bully of a content area. So because it was written for students to read about and write about, and lucky of you if you do the hands-on or lab or experiments. Now, the contemporary approach as represented in the framework, the NGSS, just flipped it. That instead of students are receiving science, actually students are constructing knowledge. So it's a flip. And that is very important for the student population where the traditional minority became the majority. So students are doing science and engineering as a scientists and engineers do, and through the process, they make sense of the phenomena or problems. So in that sense, it is a, it is a complete flap, not only for the science disciplines, but the science education pedagogy, but also for all students to be able to do. Yeah, and in California, when we were writing, we really appreciated that mantra and, and used that in our California framework and, and tried to, to carry on that uh, and make sure that we were very mindful. And then as we've been rolling out here in California, we've been really trying to see how that how that takes uh, shape and, and make sure that it takes shape and doesn't get lost in all of the other shifts that happen within the NGSS. Uh, so, I commend the, the framework and the NGSS teams to put all standards, all students at the center. Because the framework and NGSS we are going to talk about address some challenges, like some of the controversial topics, or putting engineering as a counterpart or as the companion of the science, or some of the, and then they added equity, social justice for student diversity, also, also another center. So. The framework in NGSS were pretty daring at the time. Uh, we're talking about about a century ago. By placing all those important ideas at the center, and equity was at the center. And not only that, it also is important in the sense that it's not only about the reason why the, the doing science rather than reading and writing about science is really important is that when you put the canonical knowledge of science done by scientists and science educators, science made a sense to some students, but science did not make sense to a lot of students. Science did not have any relevance to my family, home, my future, and also for most students who had difficulties with literacy, it's just, it's just the, the reading and writing about science cut them off from the get-go. So it didn't make any sense. I could not access the knowledge. And just the flipping that no, you bring ideas that have the merit about science, even with less than perfect English or even with the language processing difficulties, and you are part of a doing science using all means of a communication is really based on the asset rather than the deficit of you cannot do. And if I frame it, I am taking off a little bit more. So here is a deficit of a science and deficit of a language to asset of a science and asset of a language. And that is a consistent with that. You may think of it as linguistically racism pedagogy to linguistically sustaining pedagogy. 
And that all has happened around the framework in the NDSS. And we are at another marker of a decade with a new administration that we are going to talk about. Very exciting, isn't it? <laughs> it is very exciting. And I, I really love this idea of, of making sure that the student is, is at the center. We want them to be to be the, the center of the doing, uh, no matter where they are. And it's so important for us to, to give our students a voice then. And one of the things that, uh, that I have experienced as a teacher is trying to give them that voice. And our students, though, have been, at this point, have been kind of conditioned to only speak out when they have that canonical correct answer. And they're seeing themselves in that paradigm instead of in this, in this central role where we need them to be doing the speaking, to be doing the, the, the dialogue and engaging in that. So how do we help our middle school students really overcome that old way of thinking and see this flip in action and see themselves at the center and overcome their, their preteen social anxiety to really come alive and be that, be that little scientist? So when we say that there is a, a correct answer, that is a based on the canonical knowledge of science that is defined by someone else. In contrast, when you say that I am making sense of the phenomenon and design solutions, I am doing it. So when just even think about us, adults, very sophisticated adults, when we first come up with ideas, we don't talk about language. We say, let me gather my thoughts. What am I trying to say? I fumble. That's not exactly what I wanted to say. Um, so what matters is the idea. And then what matters is experience. And you put the idea with your experience and you finally say, okay, I'm going to put it in words. And then you eventually get to Sunday best. Now, we should respect the same process for the students as we do. I fumble because I try to gather the ideas first and communication comes after. So for students, for me, the most important thing is that it shouldn't matter to them. If it doesn't matter to me, why do I bother? So that's why the phenomenon should be really compelling. It's a compelling to me because I wanted to figure out. And then... Now, based on that, what experience do I have? What meaning do I bring? And then how am I going to say it? And we completely reverse the process of here is the answer, you should say it, and then that way, instead of here is a phenomenon that I wanted to find out, and what do I know, and what do I need to know? And now I have the ideas, and now I'm communicating with you because I'm compelled to share my ideas. When I'm so animated, I say, let me say it. I wanted to say it. And that's when students become really vocal. Eventually, they get to Sunday best of communicating because they wanted to communicate precisely. I love that. And, and so much. I think I, I've, uh, I've started using the, the term instead of phenomenon uh, with, uh, with my students in particular, with especially elementary students, I talk about what mystery are we trying to solve today? And when you have that mystery, the students seem to if there's something, if it's really a mystery that they are interested in, they care about, you're absolutely right. They do come alive. And that's, that's my, my first tool in the arsenal to, to get them involved in sharing. So thank you. The mystery that they care about. They yes. Okay. yes. Yeah. And so trying to find those things that, that really matter. And one of the ways that, uh, that we are trying to do that here in California in particular is really trying to make sure that we are finding uh, phenomena or mysteries that, 
that have enough cross-curricular connections to things that, that they're seeing in, in other aspects of their education and other aspects of their lives. And I know that you've talked a lot about bringing subjects together. And, and you've, I think you've said that, they, that, that when you do that, you start to expose both convergences and divergences between these different curricular uh, uh, subjects. So can you give us a, a practical example of uh, convergences and divergences? So one main advancement of new content standards across ELA, math, science, and social studies is this focus on disciplinary practices. The students are doing science, the students are doing math, the students are doing social studies, the different practices. And that, that is a, a real advancement over the content to learn in social studies, content to learn. When the disciplinary practices from different content areas came out, then there was an excitement of, wow, there is the Venn diagram of these disciplinary practices overlap, like explain or argue, modeling, like that. And then once people unpack those disciplinary practices, and then we realize, whoops, the content area educators and disciplinaries, they haven't spoken to one another. <laughs> I just I'm going to interrupt for a moment and tell we'll we'll put a a link to that classic Venn diagram that uh, that many people have seen, but maybe some of our listeners haven't seen this classic Venn diagram of different practices within the disciplines that uh, distributed so widely. So I was one of the um, the advocates of that Venn diagram as a part of the Understanding Language Initiative at Stanford University, where it's a collaboration of English language learner educators and the content area um, educators together. And then the more that people realize the overlap, that we come to the realization of whoops, the word does not mean the same thing across the content areas. And argumentation is a great example of the, my realization of argument is, uh, whoops, we have uh, discrepancies, uh, Houston, we have a problem here, <laughs> is when I heard about the opinion in ELA. Mm-hmm. In Common Core ELA, it is students are doing opinion from K through 5. Did you know that? I've seen this. You can do the find and search. All right. When someone said that, I thought, did I hear that right? How could that be? And I spoke with uh, some prominent science scientists and science educators. Do you know anything about opinion? Until I sat down and I did a find and search of the common core standards. And what it says is that argument writing is the most advanced form of writing because that's what counts for college and career but K through five students are not able to engage in argument. So they are doing opinion. So in ELA, K through five, they are doing opinion. I'm really not sure whether, now go to the science standards and it will say that students are making the distinction between opinion and evidence and argument. And then students are not doing opinion. So here is the, the discrepancy of an example. I'm not sure whether ELA thinks of opinion as another form of argument, just developmentally, or whether it's a different form of 
different from argument. It really is not clear whether it's a, the developmentally earlier version of argument or different forms, at least in science, opinion and argument are two different things. So that causes some confusion for K through five because the ELA is a sole dominant. So science, is, the science has some challenges of that. The same thing in social studies. Social studies standards also have that ELA Common Core uses argument for K through five, but in social studies we are going to use argument. So it's, it's that. It, another example is a modeling. Now modeling is a so important. Right? I would like to mention that even in science education, traditionally when we thought of modeling, we think of a, thought of modeling as a model airplane model of a large airplane. The volcano eruption, the most common science experiment. Tornado experiment, can you explain? No. Why do you do that? Because it looks like. So it's a physical modeling was very common. in That was really very common science fair projects in science. So when you go to modeling, and for example, in English learner education, that the area thinks of a modeling as a physical. So they use a modeling more like uh, color something or draw something as a physical model rather than conceptual model. So it's, a, it's a regarded as the lowest level of a communication as a modeling. When in science, it could be the, the most sophisticated form of communication, just like in computer science and many others. So when you look at different disciplines, you have the discrepancies as well as the convergences. And I would like to just say one thing for the California educators. Um, so there is an English language proficiency standard called the WIDA, and it's adopted by 34 states. California has its own standards, and Texas has its own ELP standards, and New York too. WIDA standards as a 2020 edition has a multi-modality going beyond the reading, writing, speaking, and listening that have been so dominant in English language arts and real education to multi-modality. So modeling is not just a physical, but this time it is modeling using tables and graphs and computational models and data and all of those as a part of modeling. And that is really important for English learners who can communicate very sophisticated ideas using all types of models, even while they are learning or less than perfect English. So those are two examples that I would like to say. As you know, over 40 states have adopted NGSS or adapted their curriculum toward NGSS. I wonder how you feel about some of the modifications that were made by some states to remove important or controversial topics. I know you have a little bit of a, it's a loaded question for you, so I'll keep it for you. <laughs> um, my recollection is not as accurate, but I would like to share a couple of anecdotes that really illustrated this conundrum and where we are going toward into the future. So they, when the NGSS, now framework is more about the base on the contemporary science. And then when the framework 
was translated into the NGS as a foundation, the basis for school curriculum, then it had all the political considerations. On one hand, that we, we, we are saying we, as a part of the NGS as a writing team, wanted to make sure that the new standards are adopted as widely as possible. At the same time, there was this political pushback against some ideas. Now, two ideas that were all, have all, had always been, I'm using past tense, were evolution and climate change. Now, the evolution, you know, when Kansas was the second state that adopted the NGSS, it just kept everything quiet. And then the climate change became the new evolution. Now there was a, at the time, there was actually a state, and Eugene, you may know the details better than, than I know, but here's my recollection. A state that was about to adopt the NGSS as a whole scale. And then a legislature or someone who was involved in the state adoption process was against climate change. So within overnight or short period, one word got changed that the human activities originally is increases climate, but it got changed to human activities affect climate change. Now that one word, Matt, when you talk about the precision of a language and has the meaning from increase to effect, someone called that. So before the adoption, what is this word change? So there was a huge debate of what to do. And because of the political debate, that it could not be increased as the NGS said but it could not be affected as a neutral term. And I think it finally became increase or decrease, something like that. So that was what settled. Now that state is not an NGSS adopted state because that one word completely changed the topic and the discipline. So that state is a state that has adapted the NGSS, but not adopted because of one trend. So, did you know about that? You know, we've witnessed and, and heard about some of these stories about that kind of intersection between departments or of education and then, you know, political areas. And so we, although believe in NGSS firmly and, and the approach, it is interesting to see how some states have adapted, as you said, the standards to best meet their own needs. I wonder if you could, uh, and thanks for, for sharing your ideas and perspective on that. I wonder if you can tell us, kind of following along, about the, the role of project-based learning and the connections that exist to the NGSS standards. So project-based learning made a real substantive contribution to the NGSS instructional, the pedagogical approach, because it was about that there is a, a phenomenon that students are solving and then through the process they are producing artifacts and solve the problem, which is the, the spirit or the vision of the framework in the NGSS. I consider project-based learning 
as the students engage in a phenomenon to solve, I mean, to explain why something happens. As a one approach in addition to the others that also make up the whole. So in addition to the project-based learning, you could think of a problem-based learning that students are solving the problem. And then there is another approach of a place-based learning that students are doing project-based learning and problem-based learning by doing the science to explain why and the engineering needed to solve the problem in a place. And typically a place is the community, home and family. So I consider all those, the project-based learning, problem-based learning and place-based learning as doing science and doing engineering to address the phenomena or problems in my place on community that affect me. I've heard you say this expression, which I found quite interesting. And that was in a talk that you were giving at one of our California conferences. And you said, if you can Google the answer, it's not worth instructional time. Can you elaborate on that for us? So that actually was not my quote per se. It's uh, the NGSS mantra. I do think that it's a combination of uh, two thoughts. One is how fast the science changes, given the contemporary science approach where things change, the knowledge changes, that could be one reason. But another reason is when you think about that science and engineering were done as students making sense of the phenomena and problems. So it's not reading about or learning about or writing about. It's using science to do something. It's a knowledge in use or doing something with knowledge. So if you can find information that is not worthy of, instead you are creating knowledge or you are constructing knowledge or you are making meaning of knowledge or you are using knowledge. It's a complete flip in this sense. Knowledge is no longer the the commodity. It's the it's the process. It's the student at the center of that, and and Google is at the center of a Google search. Is that uh, sort of the the message? Yes, which goes into the next. Uh, I mean, the phase that we are in right now. Well, we know that there are, there are many benefits of computers besides Google, and and just in general about the computational thinking in general, and and how important that is as a tool as students are these these scientists and doing authentic science. And so we we kind of wanted to to hear some more of your thoughts on computational thinking, which I know is something you thought about, and in particular, uh, really. Uh, is there some sort of equity aspect to computational thinking that we should be really paying attention to? So, as I was serving on the NSF Education and Human Development, the EHR Resources Division, NSF for the past decade really focused on 10 big ideas. That these are the 10 big ideas that will push the science disciplines and education, science education, STEM disciplines and STEM education into 2026 or into the future. And the core of those NSF 10 big ideas are all the multiple disciplines are coming together. And that include data science, computational thinking, computer science, all these the think computational thinking and devices and data science in service of doing science disciplines in service of uh, 
doing science education. So computational thinking, you can think of it as uh, that includes data science, computational devices, and it goes into artificial intelligence, machine learning, and that's a huge domain. Now, I thought that uh, multiple STEM disciplines are converging as, okay, maybe five years later, a decade later in science education, and guess what happened? The COVID-19 pandemic just put it in front of us right now. So it has been about a year ago. Uh, so what I find the computational thinking really important is that think about this image that we thought about science knowledge as a codified in written forms that students receive the information. That was up to 2010. With a framework in NGS is coming in, students to participate in constructing science and engineering. That's a 20, I, no, the, the receiving information up to 2010. Starting from 2010, students participate in making meaning of a sense making of a science and engineering. While starting from 2020, students are giving command for the computational devices to carry out their commands. I find it just fascinating. Every decade, there is a shift from I'm receiving the information to I'm participating in constructing the information or knowledge to I am giving the command for the computational devices and all the machines to carry out my command. Oh, boy. Hmm. Lots of opportunities there. <laughs> Oh, so, so why equity is important? The tradition of equity has always been that, well, let's create something, but whilst we forgot the students who have not had the opportunities, it's always making up whilst we forgot, or it's how do we compensate? Well, with NGSS, as science standards for all students and equity at the center, the same approach this time, I'm pushing the computational thinking and data science and computer models are put to put equity at the center rather than making up. And in fact, there are a lot of affordances that computational thinking and data science can provide for students. Let me just use, if you think about the multimodality, data science and computer science, computational devices and robotics, these are all other forms of a multimodality, like the graphs, the charts and tables like reading, speaking, listening, and writing. There's just a different modes of a communication. So we always thought of multimodality or communication as a people, people to people, or people with a text. But data science and computer science is a multimodality where there is a, a device in between us. And we need to think about the role of that device to provide the affordances. So you can even think about the language. Students will be saying, no, don't do that. Oh, no, no, not that. Okay, I screw up. I, I, I need to change. Oh, that's right. So the students will be talking to the computer in interactions with the students. And what would it be those affordances that devices can provide beyond the knowledge of STEM or science and engineering? And beyond we talking people to people, but through, via 
the new modes of the communication. I think it's a slope. So even even seeing computational thinking as as a as a form of language or a form of communication, and and so many of the things we think about, and we'll talk about in our uh, next episode about language equity uh, and, and people having different backgrounds, those could all be helpful in us thinking about equity in, in computational thinking. Is that sort of our plan here? Yes. Okay. I like that. Well, that sounds like great opportunities, but before we, before we get too involved in all the great opportunities, I, I, have, a, I have a dark question. We've been having a dark, a dark last year or so, uh, and I wanted to know, what do you worry about with all those opportunities, but what do you worry about in science education? that we need to be attentive to in this next decade? By nature, I'm not a pessimist or worry. Not, I'm a worrier, but not worrier. Worry. Okay. I was very excited about the framework and then the NGSS, and I was worried about implementation because I got a lot of questions about that. The new science standards are ambitious and the education system is not ready, doesn't have the capacity. How do you implement? And I kept saying, I don't know. I don't know. It's a system issue. We need to do. It's a system issue. And I worried about implementation. But I'm not worried about the NGSS implementation anymore. Why is that? When we get back to a new normal after the pandemic, new administration, addressing the racism, it's going to be a new normal. And I would say that the framework and the NGSS have paved the way for the future, if nothing else. Had it been from reading about science and writing about science to whoops, it would be a warp speed that would be almost impossible. The framework and NGS has to provide a foundation to be ready to take off. So I'm much more optimistic of opportunities than worrying about the implementation due to the limited education system capacity. That's fantastic. Uh, you are definitely not a pessimist. You turned my, my uh, dark pessimistic question into one that's actually really inspiring. So thank you. Um, that means that uh, we all need to learn together. We, we spoke briefly about the disciplinary practices, the whoops, being discrepant, even though we try to capitalize on the convergences. We should do the same thing with the different disciplines right now. It's not that we simply teach science anymore. We use a data science to make sense of the data. I think a data science and computer devices are going to be at the center. May I say one thing in that sense? All right. Matt and Eugene, you might have seen the computer simulation models of how the virus spreads and how to flatten the curve in the Washington Post. Mm -hmm. It was in March. Yes. I thought yes. it was so clever. I mean, so clever. And then as I was doing the the talks or the workshops, I would ask science educators, how many of you are familiar with this computer simulation model? And most of them would say, yep, we played it. It was a popular and we know. So that was great. And I felt very comfortable of the science educators saying, yes, we know, we know that simulation model and we played it. But at the end of the year, the Washington Post 
did a tallies of the most popular articles of the year. Do you know the one that got the highest, most frequently read of last year? That article. Not only that, that article was the most read article in the history of the Washington Post. Wow. That's incredible. It blew my mind. Well, and it, it leads in really interestingly, I think, to, you know, science and, and it could be data science as applied to something that's super meaningful. Like what could not be more meaningful than us understanding how this virus spreads or what's in store for us in the coming weeks and days and weeks and months? And Eugene, I'll, I'll tell people that, uh, so we, of course, we'll, we'll place a link to that. And also, I created a, an elementary lesson that basically has students coding up uh, the, the equivalent of that Washington Post thing uh, using you know, one of the block coding languages so that they can really do that. And there's I have a YouTube video that people can watch to see see that and really understand what it, why are we staying home? That was something I did uh, in, the, in the fall or in the spring last year. Uh, trying to to make it like make it relevant. You know, here we are. We're stuck at home. Why are we doing this? And what are we supposed to accomplish? And they can code that up themselves. Well, that's a, a good transition to our next segment where we talk about climate and the environment. Another topic that we think about in terms of our next days, weeks, and years. In one of your talks, Oki, I heard you suggest that within the classroom environment, we should use science to do something and to solve some important problems. In the work we do here at Green Ninja, that is our primary goal. We give students the opportunity to solve local environmental problems using science and engineering. Our question to you is, is, is education ready for this type of approach towards education with a purpose? I would uh, rephrase the question whether education is ready or not. The question is, what does a society demand and how to prepare the students for society? Otherwise, the education system may become obsolete and not meeting the demands and expectations of the students. So going back to the multiple STEM disciplines are coming together, I would like to frame it a little bit broadly. I thought that those multiple disciplines converging to solve a problem was applicable when scientists launch a probe to Mars. But that was pretty far from the experience of the students. That's cool, but it's not me. When you think about the COVID-19 pandemic, it is the whole STEM disciplines, along with the politics and civic engagement in the global context together. And so it's not just the context, but it actually affects us and it'll drive the future. So. We're not talking about the one discipline. We're talking about multiple disciplines together as all intersecting. And I would say that it will, that will force the STEM education into new ways of thinking, that multiple STEM disciplines in solving societally pressing issues. And it will go that way. Now, the reason why I focus on that is that I was so excited when I saw the four priorities of a Biden administration. It keeps changing, but when you have a chance to visit, build back better, small letters in one word, not capital or spaces. 
it shows the changes and evolution of the administration, but it had a four priorities up to some time ago. The first one was a COVID-19. The other one still is and was climate change. And then racial equity and economic recovery. Now using the systems thinking approach, they are not separate components. They are all interrelated components of the system as a whole. Once you negate one, you cannot adopt the other. They go together. We have the difference between the previous and incoming. So what does that mean? COVID-19 is a complex societal pressing issue that disproportionately affects minorities in terms of health, disproportionately affects minorities in terms of economy. Now, the same thing, Eugene, climate change. Climate change is not just the science of the next generation. It is using environmental justice because it is affecting certain minority groups disproportionately than more. So it is environmental justice of rural, urban, tribal areas. And we do have new nominee for the interior who represents the our our native land the the initial land which will be about the climate change so i hope that stem at the center of this new administration not as a politics but as a policy will play a key role it's not so this is what's really important interesting from evolution to climate change as controversial of the framework in NGSS a decade ago. Climate change is the policy within several years later. And I'm really asking the STEM education in collaboration with the STEM disciplines to be at the center to keep COVID-19 under control and then climate change for the future, and then the racism and economy fall into place. Well, that's, I hope we can all have some success in communicating and inspiring our science education leaders and our teachers and our students to, to feel that same passion too. So I, I look forward to that and thank you for sharing that. Okay, in our last segment of our podcast, Matt and I typically end each of our episodes with a discussion about burritos and the connection to science education, just to kind of lighten things up a little bit. For example, we explore how simple decisions around the choice of burrito we make can affect our planet and people. Do you have any stories about food and science education that you can share with us today? Right. I'm from Korea. And Korea is equated with uh, kimchi, which is uh, made of a nepa cabbage with pepper, garlic, and ginger. And the topic of a kimchi is uh, a study in and of itself. And it's almost like asking about the chocolate or cheese. It's a whole cultural marker. The one thing that I would like to say about the kimchi, since this is a winter, is about the climate change and why so. Mm -hmm. Because when I was growing up after the Korean War in a remote countryside, actually the whole 
nation, we would make kimchi. Kimchi is the source of a vitamin C from October through April. So it's a critically important that you preserve a kimchi through slow down the fermentation so that it can stay for six months, almost half of the year for the source of vitamin C. Now that's engineering, right? Mm. So there is a humongous amount of Napa cabbage and slices of all the vegetables inside. And if you're fancy, some fish in it, but pepper, garlic, and ginger to stay. Why climate change? In the past, when the weather was cold, my family members, the entire family, especially women, would make tons of the kimchi and put them in large urns and put large urns underground so that the kimchi underground, covered by the snow, can stay for months. So you can imagine urns. It's almost mm. like digging gold. <laughs> Not anymore. And that's a huge issue. So when I, at the end of my life, I would say, I would like to eat kimchi that is preserved on the ground through the snow during the winter. It would never happen. Well, um, it does remind me that, uh, thanks for sharing that story. And it reminds me of, a, of um, at one point, me and some friends had a, a burrito progression around our neighborhood where we were going to walk to different burrito shops and we had planned out and there was like 10 of us. And we, um, as we were walking from one shop and, and the idea is we would, we would eat one burrito at the shop and we'd share it. We brought our plates and knives and forks and we would split it and, and just have a little sample and then move on to the next place. And there was a, a Korean food truck that was making, that was serving burritos. And we ordered a kimchi flavored burrito and uh, I've actually been a kimchi fan for many years and appreciate that, but I hadn't, I didn't know much about how it was done in where you grew up. And so thanks for sharing that connection and also that connection to climate change. That was really fun. But ending, ending in, a, in a fun way, uh, kimchi is a great source of a probiotic. So it is very good for women of my age. But kimchi also is a gender marker in the sense that kimchi has all different kinds of uh, taste and different types, as many kimchi types of kimchi as there are different types of cheese. And if you are a woman who cannot make a very good kimchi, you are not a very good housewife, traditionally speaking. So I gave up. I said, I will never be a good woman who can know how to, know how to make a good kimchi. Don't air it, but you get the idea. <laughs> oh. The other strengths that you have brought to science education, even if not your kimchi recipe, you know, cooking and uh, preparing. <laughs> we, we, we all have our roles here. Yes. So that's a great place to stop. Thank you for joining us at Ask Matt, where we explore NGSS, science education, and the environment. And thank you so much, Oki, for joining us today. And we look forward to our next conversation with you, where we'll focus more on the connections between science and language. Thank you so much for being here with us today. It's an honor. And uh, for the listeners, we are going to sign off to join the inauguration ceremony of the new generation that launches into the future. So we all celebrate.
Thank you so much. Yay, we are definitely celebrating. Thank you.